Folks, we're really glad that you're here. Welcome. We're starting a new season of Amen. This is our, what is this, our 19th year, and uh, we just love studying the Bible together, and we especially love studying the Bible together with uh, guys from many different backgrounds. Uh, some of you don't have a church and don't go to church regularly. We're really glad you're going to think about coming on Thursday because we, we love uh, having the opportunity to share the Bible with you during the middle of the week which is a really great time to do it because by, th by Thursday, Wednesday night, man, you're wiped out. Uh, you know, you've sinned up so bad during the week. You just got to have some help, a little direction, a little forgiveness, get going again. So Thursday morning is a great day of the week. So if you don't have a church, we're especially glad you're here. If you do have a church, uh, Methodist, Baptist, uh, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, all kinds of churches in this room, uh, we are really grateful for all of you. And it adds a lot of interesting uh, perspectives to our discussions around our small groups, and uh, we really are thankful for that. Uh, we've got this year a few little things that we're going to do the, as we've always done them, and a few little things that we're going to change. Uh, things that we've always done is to have a Bible teaching. It's largely a lecture in a room with this many people. You don't usually have much other than lecture, so we lecture. We come with these outlines. Uh, it's put on the website for you uh, almost immediately, so you can pick it up if you miss an amen, uh, or if you want to go back over a few things. And the notes are there as well. And so please uh, take advantage of that. The breakfasts are back there. Uh, and uh, some of you, by the time, if you're new to amen, by the time about the fourth week is here, you'll have your regular table and you'll just go right to your seat. It's amazing. I can always tell when you're not here because your seat's empty. Uh, so uh, just enjoy, but you can feel free to move around uh, if you like. If you'd like to mix it up uh, every week, that's great. Uh, we have had a small group uh, ministry in uh, recent years, and it, it has gone extremely well. And I think it's, it's very, very helpful because you have a lecture in here, but, but you don't have an opportunity to, to push back on it or to discuss it or try to apply it in your life. And it's very, very helpful if you can talk about these things. And I think, you know, out of the, the Amen guys, maybe 120 or 140 of you last year were in small groups. We'd love to see at least that many again this year. You see a sign-up sheet on your, on your tables. And uh, if you would like to be in a small group or like to consider it, put your name uh, there under small groups. That's on the bottom. This year, we also want to say that we're very interested in helping you connect up in mentor and protege relationships. If you're willing to be a mentor or interested in being a protege, please put your name there and uh, circle with, whether it's mentor or protege right at the top of the, of the sheet. Uh, you won't be matched up automatically. Uh, you'll be given a, a match that's a suggestion, right, Don Riley? Uh, and so proteges, you'll be able to check off on that before uh, you get matched up with a mentor. So there'll be time to... A look at that, and you can talk to Don Riley, who's standing right there. Don, wave your hand. And Don has been willing on a volunteer basis to put all the groups together and put the mentor-protege uh, uh, relationships together. And Don, we are very, very thankful for that. Uh, so you'll, you'll see that that's happening. Now, we uh, have really encouraged uh, as many of our uh, men who are 40 and under to be with us because we think there are wonderful mentoring opportunities and protege opportunities in a group like this to take advantage of some of the older guys that have been around for a while. And so we're very eager to uh, match people up so that we can have those mentoring relationships, which means 
that if, if you are in a mentoring protege relationship, here would be the kind of obligation. You probably meet once a month, have a conversation, and talk about some of the things in Amen. If you wanted to meet every week, you could. But minimally, we would say once a month to talk about the substance of things going on in your life and the things that are in Amen. So, uh, and furthermore, uh, if it's possible, for those of you who are non-Second Presbyterian, we'd like to match you up with people in your own church unless you ask otherwise. <laughs> Sometimes you say, I'm tired of those people in my church. I want to be matched up with somebody else in another church. And the same thing for Second Presbyterian folks. We'll do that with you. We'll match you up with Second Presbyterian people unless you would rather be matched up on the outside. The reason for that is in a mentoring-protege relationship, it's helpful if you're going to church together and you can continue to do some things together and continue that relationship. So that's the reason for it, but we're not stuck on that. This year, uh, we have a teaching team. I'd like for you to look at these guys. Uh, you see there myself and Todd Erickson and Dick Kane and Barton Kimbrough, and you notice a couple of people are missing. Well, let me drop those in. Uh, Jerry, uh, Gary Peake uh, is going to be teaching. <laughs> and uh, Mitchell Moore. Uh, so... <laughs> Isn't it amazing what they do with this stuff these days? It's just incredible, yeah. We look like we're such friends. We don't ever get together. We just do this, you know, and he drops them in so we don't have to talk to each other. Uh, no, it's a teaching team. All these guys are excellent teachers, and we really want to add that variety to Amen this year. So we're going to uh, have several of us teaching. You see the list there of, of our assignments and when we'll all be teaching. Uh, obviously, I'm teaching more than the rest of them, but it's a teaching team, and uh, they also minister to different age groups of men. Uh, at least in our church, and they'd be very eager to help you in your church uh, to minister to the men in your church if they can be of any help to you. Uh, all of us, uh, the teaching team, will be glad to do that. So I'm looking forward to that, and as you know, I'm out of town some, and people teach in my place, but this is more than that. I'll, they'll be teaching when I am in town on occasion as well. Now, also, you'll notice that we have textbooks, and I assume you've picked these up, uh, we have one for 1 Corinthians and one for 2 Corinthians. I suppose looks like we only put out the one for 1 Corinthians. Uh, and you have it. It's here by Leon Morris, who is an excellent scholar. And uh, when we pick our texts, as you know, uh, you guys have been around for a while, and amen. Uh, we try to pick something that you're actually going to read, which means it's not going to be real long. So we, we try to find something that's to the point, real male fashion. Bottom line, get to the point. And so we look for something that gets to the point quickly, but it's high quality and uh, cheap. Three things. <laughs> this matches all the criteria. It's to the point, it's high quality, and it's cheap. So I um, hope you enjoy that. What I suggest you do with it. For example, if you'd had it before today, you would read the introduction, which is several pages, get the background in Corinthians. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then just take the texts for the next Thursday Look in here, the commentary in those texts. If you could read those pages, you, you actually come to the lecture with some thoughts and some questions you'd like to see answered. And those of us who are teaching, we'll seek to have, be familiar with that text. We have other texts, uh, commentaries that we're uh, consulting, but we'll always consult that commentary so that if there's something we want to direct your attention to, we can do that. Now, the other text is the ESV Study Bible. Those of you who have been in Amen before, you've got your ESV Study Bible. If you don't, then you can walk right down to the bookmark, and uh, they've got those there. And if they run out, uh, they'll reorder them, or you can get them in a bookstore or, or on Amazon. Uh, but I think there would be a good discount probably with a bookmark if you want to go down there and get it. And uh, somebody tell me, is it about 30 bucks, something like that, for an ESV Study Bible? I think it is. So, um, and once again, on the text, 
for example, turn to 1 Corinthians on page 2092 in the ESV Study Bible, and you'll see there that you've got all kinds of footnotes and comments on the bottom of the page. And what you want to do is look at the text we're going to be studying and just read those notes. And once again, we teachers will have read those ahead of time and want to make special reference to them during the, during the uh, lecture. Now, one other little twist for this year. Uh, for you old-timers, we're doing something a little different here. And if you're really an old-timer, I know we're going to be over your head technologically, but just you know, hang in there. Uh, we uh, normally don't have Q&A in the group because there's just too many of us. Uh, you usually email me your questions, and it's usually when I've ticked you off with something I said or something like that. But sometimes it's, it's a question about something we didn't discuss, and I usually email the question, uh, the answer back to you, and then if I think it's a question that everybody would be interested in the next week, I will cite that question and, and give a brief answer to it for the whole group. Uh, we'd like to change that a little bit. We'll still do that, so feel free to email anytime, and I'll either try to get back to you personally, or I may use your question uh, to uh, elaborate or clarify something for the whole group. But you can, if you'll look at the top of your notes, you notice there's a place where you can send your questions. Write straight to amenquestions at 2pc.org. So you can just email that right in, right? And send it to that. And then uh, anytime in the first 30 minutes or so of amen. And at a given point, I'm going to call on Lon Magnus. And he's going to select a question or two that you've sent in. Which means we won't get all your questions answered, but we'll get a one or two of them. Because sometimes it's really obvious I said something stupid or uh, I just skipped over something and you're going, whoa, 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 you didn't explain that. And Lon will be able to pick that up because he'll get several questions from you all. And we'll ask Lon to ask those questions out loud and I'll, I'll attempt an answer to those sort of in the middle of where we are. So it'll be toward the end today. Uh, but you can text those in uh, or email those in anytime you uh, want to during the lecture this morning. If you don't get your question answered but, uh, you know, publicly here, but you still want it answered, on your text that you send or your email that you send, uh, just say, please answer. And that means if you don't get your answer here, you'd like for, me, for him to send it to me by email uh, after our session, and I'll try to get back to you after that. Okay, that's a lot, of, a lot of logistics, but it is the first week at Amen. That's the way it goes. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, if you have them. And uh, let me say this for those of you who are newcomers. There are all kinds of levels of knowledge of the Bible in this room. There are some men here who teach and preach regularly. And so they, you would expect them to be much more knowledgeable of the Bible. And there are guys that, that come in and they say, I don't know a blooming thing about this book. Well, you know, where's 1 Corinthians? Is it in the very beginning or is it in the end? You know, and that's the reason I give the page numbers because some of you have just not had the opportunity to study uh, much in depth in the Bible, and that's great. We love having you here. So our intent is to teach in a way that really is going to be accessible for everybody. If you feel like you're a new Bible student, not real familiar with your Bible, there may be some things that don't quite land with you, it's okay. The general framework's going to be there, and almost everything we're talking about, I believe, will be accessible to you, and we'll just guide you through the Bible. And what you find is, as, you, as the year goes on, and you, study, you stay in there and keep studying the Bible, and I recommend you read it every day, too. 
You just keep studying the Bible, it'll become more and more familiar. It'll start to make more and more sense. That's the way it works. But we love to have guys in here who feel like they are newcomers to the Bible, and we want to be helpful to you. Uh, so hang in there. It'll, it'll, it'll get more familiar as we go on. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians, and let me just make a few opening comments about 1 Corinthians before we read, read the, the relatively long text that's in front of us. And after all, most of the text will be long because we're doing 1 and 2 Corinthians, so it's going to be about a chapter a week. Uh, so there'll be relatively longer texts. But let me just say this. Paul had gone to Corinth on his famous second missionary journey. And if you'll turn, leave your finger in 1 Corinthians, but turn back to page 2118, Acts 16, 2118, and you will see there a map of Paul's second missionary journey, and you can see where Corinth is. Let's look at that just a minute. In Paul's second missionary journey, you can see he started off going to some churches he had already founded in Derby, Iconium, Lystra, there in the, the area of Cilicia, just south of Galatia. And then he went across. He wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit didn't allow him to. Took him to Troas, where he had a, the Macedonian vision to go over to Philippi and Neapolis. You see that there in the area of Macedonia, northeast Macedonia. Then Paul, on that journey, went all the way down to Athens. And you remember he went to the Areopagus, the intellectual elite in Athens, and made his speech. And they thought he was a crazy man. And he probably got kicked out of Athens. And he then went to Corinth. And he went by himself because Timothy had not yet had time to come down to Athens to join him. So Paul seems to be all by himself. And he goes into Corinth. And we'll talk about that a little later. Corinth was an amazing city. It had been destroyed about 100 years before Paul was there and rebuilt. Or rather, it was rebuilt 100 years before Paul got there. So it was an ancient city that was destroyed, but only 100 years later rebuilt. Had a lot of retired military in it. It was a huge uh, uh, sea town, so lots of sailors. They had about a half a million people in that town. It was enormous. And of those half a million, about... 250,000, maybe 300,000 of them were slaves and former slaves. Now, this was a rough and tumble city. It was economically very prosperous. It was morally absolutely decrepit. They say that when the ships would come in, that you, the, the Acra Corinth is a, about a 2,000-foot mountain. If you've been to Corinth, Corinth is right at the foot of that mountain. It's kind of like... Uh, Chattanooga, you got Chattanooga down here and Lookout Mountain or Signal Mountain up here. Is right, the city was right at the base of the mountain. From the Acre Corinth, at the top of the Acre Corinth was a temple of worship to a pagan god, and that's where all the prostitutes lived. They would look out, and when they saw the ships come in, they just started to swarm Corinth. And they say there were about 1,000 prostitutes in, in Corinth. So it was a rough and tumble uh, city. And if you go to Corinth even today, you will see where Paul came into the city. And up on the hill was one of the most splendid sites uh, architecturally that one would imagine, and that is the great temple of Apollos. Uh, and uh, it was dominant over the city. And I can just imagine Paul coming in by himself into a city that, that knew nothing of Christ. 
There was a synagogue there. They had enough Jewish population to have a synagogue. And Paul goes to the synagogue, as was his practice, and begins to teach there. And eventually gets kicked out. And he goes to the home of Titius Justus. And there he, he preaches to the Gentiles. And, of course, faces tremendous opposition. It's an amazing thing when you think of Paul on his second missionary journey going to do that. Now, back over to 1 Corinthians. Uh, so Paul had been to Corinth, and now he's, when he's writing this letter, he's on his third missionary journey. And he's writing from Ephesus, where he spent over two and a half years ministering to the Ephesians. But because of some problems in Corinth, he now is going to communicate with them. Now let's talk about those problems for just a moment. We have in our Bibles 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And let me just say, that's actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. He wrote a letter before he wrote 1st Corinthians. We don't have that letter. But you find him referring to it in 1st in Corinthians chapter 5. He refers to the letter that he sent them before that apparently wasn't clear enough. So he hears back from them. Take, to turn over in 1 Corinthians to, to uh, chapter 7, and you'll see there, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. See that on 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And from there, probably to the end of the book, he is addressing questions about which they wrote to him back after he had already written to them. So he first wrote to them. They wrote back to him asking some qualifying questions. And chapter 7 through the end of 1 Corinthians is about that, those questions they asked him. But Paul actually is more urgent about another source of information he had. If you'll look in the text we're going to read in just a moment, in verse 11, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. That gets Paul's attention. It's more urgent to him than even the questions they're asking in the letter. So Paul has two sources of information. He has a report from Chloe and what she said about what's going on in that church. And he spends the first six chapters on that topic. Now we're going to see what that topic was. And it has many different aspects to it, but it's really one big topic. And then in chapter 7 through the end of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing their questions. We'll get into this later in 2 Corinthians, but Paul then writes a sad letter that rebukes them deeply. He's wondering if it'll even cut off their relationships. We don't have that letter. And then 2 Corinthians would be the last letter, the fourth letter, when he has heard that they've received his strong letter and have repented. And so 2 Corinthians is a very passionate letter as we'll see when we get there uh, later on in the winter. So 1 Corinthians is addressing some concerns that came to him on a second-hand report and the questions that they're asking. Now what you're going to see is that the report that he gets and the questions they ask show us this church is massively screwed up. I mean, let me just ask you something. If you went to church and... Uh, it was very famous that the church was boasting about their liberty in Jesus. And they demonstrate this by one of the men having sexual relations with his stepmother. How would that go for you? Do you think that's a really good church? How about if in the church 
when they have disputes, they sue each other in civil court. So they have all this litigation going on in the church. How did you feel about a church like that? What would you think of a church that uh, decided that they would just get drunk at communion? And when they had a fellowship supper, the rich people would bring food and not share any with the poor in their fellowship supper. So the, so the poor people in the fellowship supper over in the corner of the fellowship hall, nothing, nothing to eat. That's, gonna be, that's a great church, isn't it? How about a church that uh, believes that there really is no bodily resurrection, that the resurrection has really already happened. It's kind of a spiritual thing. When you believe in Jesus, you're kind of resurrected, you know, like springtime, and, but there's no bodily resurrection. Would you call this thing a church? Well, that's the Corinthians. And that, I, that's not all their problems. That's just some of them. And you know what? This letter is very relevant to us. We need ministry to us to show us how we're supposed to live this life in the screwed up world that we're living in. And some of the churches that are messed up. How do we do this? And we'll see how Paul does it. Paul is addressing the issue of how you and I can live a life that imitates the life of Jesus in a world that's not imitating him. How can you live what we call a holy life in an unholy world? That's the big concern. And let's dive in and read the 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and a few verses of chapter 2 and see how far we can get today. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's stop right there. Notice in this section, these nine verses, Roman numeral number one, God has called us to be His people. God has called us to be His people. I want you to notice in verse 1 the word called. Notice in verse 2 the word called. Notice in verse 9 the word called. And you'll also see it in the rest of chapter 1. You'll, you'll see the word uh, in verse uh, 24 and the word calling in verse 26. This is obviously a very important word to the apostle. We are called to be his people. And when you hear a preacher or a teacher like myself teaching the Bible and presenting Jesus Christ, what's happening to you is you are being called again. Every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the outward call is going out to you. But what Paul is saying is there's also an inward call, an, what we call an effectual call, a call that's unfailing, and that's the call that changes your heart. So when you hear the gospel, you hear it with your ears. There's a logic and a story that you're listening to. There are some decisions that you're thinking about. At the same time, what we're taught in the Bible is the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you nonverbally and actually changing your heart and opening your heart to the message.
And it is absolutely necessary, as we'll see in a few moments, because in our natural condition, we think this is all foolishness, gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. It's silly and it's weak. But when the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts to see reality, all of a sudden it becomes life itself. And Paul is talking about the calling that you have. It's an outward calling. You've been given the message that you're to walk with Jesus Christ and be like Him. You've also had an inward work in your heart that has convinced you that this is true. And He is now calling us to live up to the calling that we've received. Now, notice that we are called, first of all, in verse 1, A, through authoritative apostles. Paul says, I'm called by the will of God. Paul didn't say, hey, I'd like to be an apostle. Where do I volunteer for that? Where's the recruiting office? That's not what happened to Paul. As you know, on the road to Damascus, Paul was knocked on his rear end by a blazing light, which happened to be the Lord Jesus himself. And Paul was called visibly and audibly by the Lord Jesus Christ to be his apostle. And then Paul is given infallible revelation. It's the revelation of God. Paul says in Galatians 1, what he gives us is what God gave him. So that really what we're getting through the apostle is God's word to us. So when we read the Bible, we are reading God's infallible word to us through fallible apostles. And that's God's choice to give us his word that way. He's an apostle. And the word apostle just means one who is sent. So he is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the delegate, the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like when Secretary Kerry makes an appearance over in Israel, he represents none, no one less than President Barack Obama. So he is his delegate. When the Apostle Paul speaks to us in the Scriptures, he represents none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ is speaking through him. That's how we have the Word of God. We know that when we go to the New Testament, reading the words of the apostles and their associates, we are reading the very Word of God to us. Secondly, notice that we're called for holiness. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints. The word sanctification is the same word for holiness. And holiness means to be set apart for something. So at its root, the word hagias in Greek just means set apart. So if you have a special little, uh, uh, or let's take it this way. If, you're, if your wife has special jewels that she doesn't just keep in her, in her jewel box, but no, she puts those in the safety deposit box. She sets those apart for special purpose, special evenings. Well, it's that kind of setting apart that the Lord has done with us. If we're his followers, we have been set apart specially by him. Now, what are we set apart for? For what we call moral holiness, or that is personal holiness, to follow and imitate Jesus Christ. So what he calls men to do is to be set apart by him to be the little Christs, the men who are imperfectly but authentically reflecting the character of Jesus Christ in the world. That's the calling. Now, when we use the word calling today, we normally think about my calling to be a pastor, your calling to be a banker or a school teacher or a lawyer or a businessman. Or you may say, I was just called to be a farmer for many years past. And we think of calling that way. And certainly, the Lord does equip us for various things. 
And we can kind of feel, as Eric Little said, when I run, I experience the pleasure of God. So we, the, when, we're, when we're doing what we're gifted to do, there's a sense of deep satisfaction that is there. And if you want, you could call that calling, but call it secondary calling. Your primary calling is not any occupation on the face of the earth. Your primary calling is what we call vocation, from the Latin word calling, vocare, which is to follow Christ. That's your calling. And really, it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, missionary, teacher, businessman, banker. None of that really matters. Here's what matters. Fulfilling your calling to live a life to walk with Jesus Christ no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what the circumstances are. And I look around this room and I see a lot of circumstances. I don't know every one of you, but I know some of you. I know some of you are going through some difficult things right now. And you know what? There's one thing that matters. Fulfilling your calling. And your calling is to walk with Jesus Christ no matter what the circumstances are. And so our task as his followers, is to figure out what it means to follow Christ in these particular circumstances and to become the expert on being a follower of Christ in these circumstances. That's our calling. Now, thirdly, notice we do it in community. He says, you're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already traveled to Ephesus, to Athens, to Philippi, to Jerusalem, to Caesarea. He's been calling people all over the Mediterranean world. And he says, you're called to be in community with them. Well, if you're called to be in community with the ecumenical church, surely, surely you're called to be in community with the men in your church. So we're going to live this holy life together. And let me just tell you something. You cannot do it without the together. People have tried it, and they fail. And one reason is, one of the big issues, as we're going to see in the text, is getting along with each other. And you know what our solution to getting along with each other is? Just avoid each other. That's the way we usually do it. Just silo. Well, he's a jerk. I just want everything to do with him. And Paul is saying, no, you're called to be holy together with all the saints in every place. So welcome to the family, fellow jerk. And let's all of us jerks figure out how we're going to get along together. That's what he's saying. Uh, he did, that's not non-Pauline language, I assure you, but that's what he means. Now, in verse, verses 3 through 7, see that he's saying that we are called to be his people with all the grace gifts that he has given us. We'll come back to these things later on in the year because he is complimenting them for the very areas where they're messing up. They were so proud of being able to speak in tongues. And he says to them, look at you. You've got all kinds of gifts of speech. They were proud of their words of knowledge that they had from the Holy Spirit. He says, look at you. You have all knowledge. And they were so proud of all their spiritual gifts. And he says, look, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Do you notice what the apostle is able to do? He's able to compliment and commend them for things that are really commendable. So just because you're abusing some privilege you have doesn't mean that you shouldn't be commended for recognizing the privilege that you have. And sometimes in our critique of each other and ourselves, we just lambast and everything's negative rather than being very careful and precise about what you mean and celebrating what God has done. Even in a screwed up church like this one, Paul can see that the Lord's at work there. And so often you get so frustrated at the church or your small group or your family member or whoever it is, and you just write them off. Paul is able to look very justly, very carefully, 
and see where God is at work and celebrate it and commend them. It's a wonderful trait of His. And then in verse 8, with no end. Who will sustain you to the end? And then look at this word, guiltless. Corinthians, guiltless. Look, in the ancient world, the word to Corinthianize meant to go whore hopping. I mean, Corinth was notorious for its wickedness. And what we're going to see is the church was reflecting the wickedness of its own city. That was its big problem. And he says to them, the end of the day, you're going to be guiltless. <laughs> That's hilarious. Guiltless, these people. Listen, guys, uh, when we're honest with ourselves, this is a Corinthian group right here. We don't have to go any further. And let me tell you what the promise is. You get to the end of the day, walking with Jesus, slugging it out. The end of the day, guiltless. Every one of you, for one simple reason. You put your guilt on Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, he took your guilt away from you. And now you have no more guilt. Man, what a gospel. Well, let's keep moving. Verse 9, that we're called into fellowship with Christ. This is, the, of all the things, the most amazing one. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. So you see, your calling is to be like Christ, and your calling is to be in Christ, to be his, one of His best friends. And He's your best friend. So this is your calling. This is what it's all about to walk with Jesus Christ, no matter whether you live in Corinth or Memphis or anywhere else. That's where he starts with them, reminding them who they are in Jesus. Now, look at verse 10. Let's read through the rest of our text. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now there you have it. That's the big concern. Now we're going to see that that quarreling and the divisions that come in the church come as a result of human pride. And dominantly, can I say it, male pride. Just look at this text with me and you'll see this is the big problem in that church. A bunch of proud people. And Paul's going to give them the answers to that pride. Let's look at it. That there are uh, quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean, verse 12, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, 
and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay, God has called us to be His united people. So, we are called to be His people, but we're called also to be His united people. So, if you choose to give your life to Jesus Christ, guess what you did? You just gave it also to the church, to His people. And you are called to be one family with them. And we see in the text here that we have a tendency, verses 11 through 17, to quarrel over personalities. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, the quarreling that's going on is among brothers. If you want to know the most common name for the church in the New Testament, it's not church, it's not the bride of Christ, it's not the body of Christ. The most common word is brothers. Doesn't that say something to us? No, I've got a brother. <laughs> I can tell you some stories about my brother and me. <laughs> some of the little squabbles we got into. Not little sometimes. Remind me to tell you about the peanut butter sandwich right in his face. Uh, that's my favorite one. I'll get that one to that one someday. Brothers fight, don't we? But we get each other's back, don't we? Don't we work out our, our problems normally? Or don't we wish that we could normally? So brothers are brothers. And here's what, we're, here's what God is saying. When you get called to Christ, you end up with brothers. And you have to learn how to act like family. And Paul says, before I get to any of this stuff, let's just talk about stuff that's dividing you as family. And let's deal with your family issues. You cannot live a holy life. You cannot live the Christian life without learning how to live in relationship with your brothers. It's impossible. And that's the reason the apostle starts here and spends six chapters on it. And he's talking about the inappropriate sexual relationships going on in your family. He's talking about the inappropriate litigation that's going on among brothers. And he talks about the party spirit that's going on among brothers. And that's what he's talking about in verses 11 through 17. So that when we go to church, oh man, my preacher, he's better than anybody else. Oh, my Sunday school teacher, I wouldn't go to any Sunday school class because, of, because Bob. Bob's such a great teacher. And then Bob dies and your Christian life is over. <laughs> it's amazing. 
I've seen people, when that pastor moves, their Christian life and their church life, it's gone. Because it was all Bob. And Paul is saying, did Bob die for you? Were you baptized in the name of Bob? And you say, no, it was Bubba, I think. Yeah. I baptized you in the name of Bubba? No. You're baptized in the name of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, the worst ones of you are not the ones who are saying, I'm following Apollos or I'm following Paul or Cephas, which is Peter, by the way. But those of you who say, we're the Christ followers. All the rest, the rest of those people, I don't know who they're following, but we're the real Christians. Those are the most divisive people of all. And Paul says, why are you breaking up into, into little parties like politics? You've got Democrats and Republicans. And all we have to do is look at our denominational life and say there's just something not quite right here. Now, I understand, you know, someone comes from Scotland, so they're going to be a Presbyterian. Someone comes from England, so they're going to be Methodist or Episcopalian. Someone comes from Germany, so they're going to be a Lutheran. You know, I, I get it. But eventually, don't, don't we figure out how to reconnect with each other? I mean, we're not living in Germany anymore. We're living here. Why don't we learn how to connect with each other? So in your life, outside of your local church, be sure that when you think about your ministry to this city, you're connecting with other brothers to the best of your ability. That's one of the great things about our parachurch organizations, several of which are represented in this room. They allow us opportunities to minister in the city together with people from other denominations. It's the spirit of wanting to have brotherly relations that is part of, the, of following Jesus Christ that he's talking about. Now, what's the answer? Let's get to that. In B... Verses 18 through 2-5, we see that we have a tendency to forget several things. The problem is pride. And what Paul is going to show us is we're going to break through this pride, which was the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, you'll be like God if you eat of this fruit? The very first sin of the Garden is our biggest sin, the sin of pride. How are we going to break through? Paul gives us three things. Number one, he shows us that foolishness becomes wisdom through the cross. He says the word of the cross. Look at that great, that great phrase. He says, uh, verse 18, for the word of the cross. That's it, the word of the cross. Now, initially, what do we do to the word of the cross? Well, by our natural selves, we try to destroy it. To the perishing, the word of the cross is folly to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. A scandal just means a big stone that you trip over. That's what a scandalos is, a scandal. And Jesus says that he's the cornerstone, but to the unbeliever, he's just become a big stone in the middle of the pathway they trip over. So he's become a scandal. And we use the word scandal in a different way. But they're both, they're both legitimate. For the Jew, the idea that Jesus was the long-awaited conquering Messiah was a scandal. It was ridiculous. The conquering Messiah is not going to get killed on a cross to his utter shame and indignity by Roman authorities. The Messiah is going to come and destroy the Romans. So it's a complete scandal to the Jews. To the Greeks, well, you get it in Acts 17 when he goes to Athens and they're all going, what's this about a resurrection? This sounds like foolishness to us. And it does sound, the gospel sounds like foolishness. That Jesus Christ 
would die on a cross to pay for your sins. It sounds like a fairy tale. I can remember on an international flight explaining the gospel to, to a, a, a man with a Muslim background. And he said to me, that sounds just foolish and irresponsible to have somebody else die for your sins. <laughs> That's the way it sounds. It just sounds impossible. It sounds silly. That's what the apostle is saying. If you don't realize it actually happened and that it actually works in people's lives, of course it sounds foolish to us. And what's the reason, ultimate reason it sounds foolish? Because of our pride. Because if I have to depend upon a dead Jew for my standing with God, that puts me at the lowest possible place. You mean somebody else has to die for me? I can't earn my way back? This is embarrassing. It's humiliating. That's what it is. It's humiliating. So whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you have a wonderful religious system that's based on your performance like a Jew would, or a Greek who loved high-sounding rhetoric and sophistry and fine, eloquent words and thoughts and concepts and airy principles about the progress of humankind and the obligation we all have to ascend to the highest level capable of each one of us and defending our honor. In either case, it's absolutely humiliating, the gospel is. And so we'll find a way to trash it. Why do we trash it? Because of our pride. It really happened. Jesus really did die on the cross. And he really did die for sinners. And his Death on the cross really does remove the sins off of men who humble themselves and receive the gift. And those men really do get to the end of the day guiltless. It really works. But my pride won't allow me to accept it. That's the big problem. So Paul says you need to remember something. That to the called, to those who have had their hearts changed to see reality, verses 24 and 25, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. So, what we have is the cross of Christ. Powerful. Why is it powerful? Well, I'll tell you why it's powerful. Because it redeems sinners like you and me. And there's no other answer. That old rugged cross of Calvary where he died, that's the only way in which your sins can be completely taken off your account. That's, he is the only one who lived a perfect life and the only one who can give you credit for living a perfect life yourself so that you have the same standing, I mean with this with all reverence, you have the same standing before God as Jesus Christ himself does. Because Jesus Christ, through faith in him, has given you credit for his righteousness in toto the moment you believe in it. That's the foolishness of the cross. It's powerful. It really does redeem you. And those of you who have put your trust in Christ, your life is radically different than it would have been otherwise because the cross is powerful. And Paul even says, may I, he says in Galatians chapter 6, may I boast about nothing else except the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, Paul says, it's that cross which has broken the bondage between me and this corrupt world. And I'm now free from being under the rule of a corrupt world. I can now... Follow Jesus Christ and live a holy life for one reason, the cross of Calvary. It destroyed the evil allurement that I had to the world. So it's the power of God. It's also the power of God because the cross destroyed God's enemies and your enemies. You can't see this with your 
physical eyes. But when you look into Colossians 2 or Hebrews 2, you will see that we are told the principalities and authorities have been destroyed by the cross of Christ. And they know it. And that's the reason they're so angry and raging now because they know their days are numbered. They've been absolutely consigned to everlasting banishment from all pleasures and from human existence. And that day will come soon. The power of God and the cross. And then he says it's the wisdom of God. Why is it the wisdom of God? Here's why. In the cross, the very character of God is revealed more prominently than anywhere else in all of history. When you take the event of the cross and the empty grave and the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God, that whole redemptive event in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., you have there the display of the wisdom of God. You want to know about the love of God? Look at the cross. You want to know about the holiness of God and what He thinks of sin? Look at what it did to Jesus when He stood in your place on the cross. There's the holiness of God. You want to look at the faithfulness of God in keeping His covenant? Look at the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. There is placarded before all of humanity the great wisdom of God. And when philosophers are converted, they leave behind their sophistry and they embrace the simple, profound, wise message of the cross of Jesus Christ. To the called, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now lastly, uh, we will look at something else that we forgot. Uh, Not only the foolishness of the cross, but that nobody's become somebody's. And in verses 26 and 31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. Well, what about your calling? Well, we've already seen that you're called to be a saint. You're called to follow Jesus. You're called to be in Jesus. But what else about your calling? He says, well, you forgot something. You forgot where you came from. He says, now how many of you were of noble birth? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I see a, a prince or two out there. The rest of you, just a bunch of slobs. <laughs> have you forgotten? You commoners? You peasants? You know, have you forgotten where you came from? How many of you were wise? Oh, I see a couple of people with, you know, degrees in philosophy, but not too many of us. How many of you are really intelligent? Have a really great IQ. Well, mm-hmm. So now how many of you were of very prestigious social uh, status? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says, you forgot something really, really important, and that's where you came from. You have all kinds of reasons to be humble. And the key to unity in relationships is your humility. It really is. Your biggest problem in that relationship you're struggling with, especially your wife, let me tell you why, your big problem is your big head. That's the problem. You're the problem and Jesus is the answer. Just remember that. I just gave you marriage counseling. That's it. You're the problem. Jesus is the answer. That's it. If you can get that, you'll have a great, you'll be a wonderful husband. You're the problem. Jesus is the answer. And here's the answer. Just remember this. He died on the cross for you. So now you're going to go home and complain against your wife. Oh, that's very interesting. I thought Jesus, all the complaints he had against you, I thought he dropped them when he died on the cross. Now any slob who knows he's been forgiven at Calvary's cross knows he does not have a right and go, to go home and make claims against his wife and hold grievances against her. You're an idiot if you do that. The cross has broken your pride and enabled you to relate to her. Also, another reason for humility. Remember where you came from. And I tell you, ultimately where you came from, that was the pit. You were a sinner going to hell and you deserved it. Every single one of us. 
So how are you going to complain about anything? How are you going to rise up and put yourself over another human being? You're absolutely unaware of yourself when you do that. So you're unaware of what God has done to forgive you for your sins, and you're completely unaware of your natural status as a creep. That's where we start. So let's just get it straight. Then lastly, I said that was lastly, but it really wasn't. I got 90 seconds, and I'm going to use it. Number three, chickens become lions. Paul says, you think I came into Corinth? Everybody hear me. I've got the message everyone needs. Paul came into Corinth like this. Scared to death. A chicken. He said, I came in fear and trembling. But I resolved that even in this great city of a half a million people with no Christians in it, and I'm the only one that fear with fear and trembling, my body not cooperating with my mind, I was so terrified that I would resolve to know one thing, and that'd be the cross of Calvary because it saves people. And it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. It's the one thing this world needs. Gentlemen, it's the one thing they need. And then you see here that the outcome is from he became a lion with faithful proclamation and the outcome was a powerful faith. Because when you proclaim Christ and Him crucified, not yourself as a wonderful Christian, you're proclaiming Christ, that then the one who hears you rests in the power of God, not in Himself. And he can do the same thing you've done because you've presented Christ crucified to him. This is the heart of the message. This is what breaks human pride. This is what enables you to get along with the guy next to you at the workplace or with your wife or your girlfriend or your children or your grandchildren. Breaking pride by the cross of Christ and the remembrance of where you come from. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this word from 1 Corinthians. Help us to put it into practice as we go our way today, please humble us and give us great joy knowing that we are humble because our day of exaltation is coming soon when we will see you face to face and be declared guiltless forever and ever and ever and be reunited with those whom we've lost in recent years. Lord, now go with us and empower us to be the messengers of wisdom and power of God through the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.